Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast with your host, Andrew Keel. This is the podcast where you can get the education you need to invest 100% passively in the highly profitable niche of mobile home parks. Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Keel, and today we have an amazing guest in Mr. Abraham Anderson. Before we dive in, I want to ask a quick favor. Would you mind please taking an extra 30 seconds to head over to iTunes and rate this podcast with five stars? This helps us get more listeners and means the absolute world to me. So thanks for making my day with that five-star review of the show. All right, let's dive in. Abraham Anderson exploded onto the mobile home park investing scene after attending a mobile home park boot camp back in 2019. Within four years, Abraham has become a top 50 mobile home park owner with over 2,200 lots and over 40 communities across six states. Abraham, welcome to the show, brother. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, glad to be on here. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it was great seeing you at Seco and bumping into each other. And I know I twisted your arm a little bit to get you to, to do this recording. So I'm excited to uh, to learn a little bit more about you. I mean, I've been been hearing your name from sellers that we've been cold calling, you know, for quite some time. So it's it's nice to uh, you know get to learn more about you. It's a small space for sure, and so uh, you know, friendly competition and, and running into each other. But you know, it's uh, it's great to see you at Seco, and I'm glad to be here. <laughs> awesome, man. Would you mind starting out by telling us a little about your story and? You know what in the world inspired you to go to the mobile home park boot camp and, and start investing in mobile home parks? Sure. So uh, before I was into parks, I was into apartments, and because I always, even when I was really young, I knew I wanted to be into real estate. I had a couple inspirations. My brother, who's much older than me, owned several houses, and I remember one comment he made to me. I thought was really cool. He said, "If you can just sell, save up the money for a down payment, then the renters pay the mortgage." And I thought, man, that's really cool. And I had a friend whose dad was a contractor and he owned some apartments. And so when I was 18, I started selling insurance, which is my dad's business. And from doing that, I'd saved up enough money to basically put a down payment on or to buy a piece of land and then a bank loaned me money to build four townhomes. So that was my first foray into real estate. So I, was, I, was, I did that, I built those four. I ended up selling those and buying apartments. So I was in apartments and, you know, it's a good business model and you can make, I made money at it, but what always killed me with apartments was I'd get it completely full. I had 20 apartments. I had to get it completely full and then somebody would leave and then have, you know, three, four, five, six thousand dollars churn. And then I get it full again, someone else would leave or, you know, the HVAC would go out. That's another 6,000 or the hot water heater would go out. So it was just a constant game of, of whack-a-mole and, and, you know, chasing my own tail with, with trying to get a handle on these expenses. And I listened to a lot of podcasts, uh, just like this one here, just all, all different kinds of real estate. And, you know, every so often I would hear about mobile home parks. And my first reaction was always, I don't want to buy a trailer park. But as I learned more about them and I realized the business model is just a parking lot, you know, you own the land and the tenants own their homes and they take care of their homes because the two big expenses with apartments were repair and maintenance and the turnover and with parks they own their own homes that's the ideal model and so they just pay a lot rent so you don't have to maintain their home you don't have to do repair and maintenance 
And the average person that owns their home in a park stays over 10 years versus with apartments, it's a year or two years, maybe. So the two biggest headaches I had with apartments, you know, virtually didn't exist with parks. So I was like, okay, this is what I need to be doing. I'm going to buy mobile home parks and this is going to be my focus. I love that. That is so cool. And then I believe you were the number one life insurance salesman for a major insurance company. I would love to know, you know, how your time in the insurance business shaped how you invested in mobile home parks, if at all. And, you know, you just mentioned you, you started at, at 18 years old. So would you mind sharing a little bit about that with us? Yeah, absolutely. I enjoyed insurance. It was a lot of fun to me because I really enjoy conversations. And with insurance, what I, I primarily did like Medicare insurance and, and, you know, life insurance. And so often people already had a specific type of policy. And my goal was to get them the exact same policy for just less money a month. So that was always fun to me. I love saving people money. And it was, again, the conversations were fun. So it, was, it wasn't even like a job. It was easy. But I really hated all the paperwork. That was not very fun <laughs> with insurance. But the carryover into parks was really a lot of the demographics I was talking with to with insurance were you know people 50s, 60s, 70s. And this is the majority of the people that own mobile home parks, the mom and pops that either built the park or they might have built it with their parents and they inherited it now. So it was very natural to go, you know, from that uh, talking about insurance to going into uh, to, you know, talking about real estate with them. And funny enough, when I was still doing insurance and real estate at the same time, uh, I ended up having like probably a dozen park owners that ended up I helped them with their insurance. And so that was my way of staying in touch with them and calling them every six months. Hey, you know, have any questions on your insurance? Okay, well, do you want to sell your park yet? <laughs> and so that was, that was kind of funny. That is amazing. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, tell us about your first deal, right? So you went to the boot camp uh, 2019. I mean, it's only been four years. I mean, what, what did that first deal look like? And kind of did you follow Frank's model or? You know, how did you how did you come across that first one? Yeah, the first deal and almost every deal I've done has been off market, mostly direct to sell, or some of it has been through like assignments. But the the first two parks I bought, it was the same seller. Uh, one was a thirty space park, the other one was a thirteen space park with the house. And this was a guy. He was he owned a bunch of just various types of real estate and just wanted to be done with it. That wasn't his main business. And somebody. Uh, you know, gave me his contact information. And so I, I got in touch with him and worked it out. But uh, so, yeah, so the 30 space park, uh, that one, it was about half park on home rentals and the other half was tenant owned. But otherwise it was a perfect first park. It was uh, city utility, city water, city sewer, direct build. And so really on that one, all I had to do was sell out, convert those homes to, to tenant owned. And so we went to all the tenants and just told them, hey, you know, you want to be a homeowner? And most of them were ecstatic. And really, a lesson I learned from that first park, that 30 unit, uh, I still like just always stuck with me. Uh, it, this was a, a Hispanic guy, and when we told him that we're gonna, we can, we'll sell him the home, he was just, he was so excited. And so we, we, he almost did, honestly, he told me later he didn't even think it was real because he wanted to buy it for years from the previous owner, and he never would sell it. So we met him, we signed the papers. And then the ink hadn't even dried and he got on the ground. He started pulling up all the weeds in his yard and making his garden nice. (laughs) That just showed me how cool it was that, you know, when when you have a community, you get everyone owns their home. It's a community and they take care of their own home and their their yard and everything else. And it's just 
an awesome feeling to have that sense of community and, and to, uh, to build that in these, in these parks. That's so fantastic. And I mean, you, you scaled to over 40 communities now from, you know, that first one that was what, you know, 30, uh, 30 yeah, 43 units or so. So tell yes. us about some of the bigger deals you've done, you know, some of the more recent ones, that'd be awesome. Sure. Well, I've done from, from six lots all the way up to 358 as far as in one park. Wow. <laughs> so other deals, it's been a lot, especially right now. Uh, it's, it's Tell us about that big one. Tell us about that big one. 358 lots. That's yeah, that, a... that, that was a city. <laughs> 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 that was its own city. It's actually one of my favorite deals as well. I own two parks in this, this one area. And in, in this area, most of the parks were pretty full. And there's this one park that had quite a bit of vacancy. So it's 358 spots, but it probably had 200 vacant vacancies, wow. which didn't make any sense to me because every other park was full. And it was a nice area and the park was fine. It was very difficult to track this guy down. I could not get him on the phone. So finally, I just ended up visiting him and got in touch with him. You know, just ran into the guy and was able to work it out. It took several months, but I bought that park and uh, it was it was great. Uh, actually, I, that's one of the only parks I ever sold. I ended up selling that and my other parks in this area. But, uh, but again, everything else I've, I've, I've got, I've kept. But yeah, it was very fun. I, I like the parks. I almost regretted selling it because it was just such a big property. And I've, I've never even seen a park that big come up for sale. <laughs> yeah. Park Why'd you selling. sell? Why did you end up selling? It was very far away. I'm in the Southeast. It was on the West. And so that park was great because it was all tenant owned. Like I said, it was like 158 occupied of the 358. The other two I had there were all rental homes. Like mm. it was, I had also, I had a 59 space park and an 89 space park in the same city, all rental homes. And it was very difficult to manage that many park owned homes far away and successfully convert them over. So like, we got a pretty good offer on it and we ended up saying, you know what, you know, no one ever went broke taking a profit. So we ended up selling that and then buying other properties in the Southeast. I love the, the Sam Zell quote there. That's awesome. Yes. Abraham, <laughs> what, is your, what does your team look like? I mean, you know, you've been doing this four years now. You know, how do you manage your communities and, and all of that? Sure. So we have in most communities, we have an on-site community manager. And uh, sometimes if we have two or three nearby, they'll, they'll all, uh, they, they'll manage multiple communities. And then I have a district manager and his job is to essentially make sure the managers are doing their job. So he feels the calls with them. He gets on, you know, weekly meetings to, uh, to see how performance is going and everything else. And on top of that, we have an office manager who's an expert with, uh, with our property management software. And so she helps with that. And then we have one other guy that does uh, capital expenditure projects, such as paving and, and landscaping and things like that. So we've got about probably 12 on-site managers, the one district manager, and then two other staff. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. So yeah, you're handling everything, property maintenance, CapEx management, all in-house. Yes. And then that's awesome. So can you share with us, you know, how your mobile home park investing strategy has changed, if at all, you know, since your first investment and why? Sure. So initially, when I was looking at parks to buy, I wanted, you know, just the turnkey easy park. I wanted, you know, completely full, all tenant owned, public utilities, direct build. And that's all I would look at. And as I started progressing, those got harder to find. And so I've been taking on more turnaround projects. Like it, it could be heavy park on homes or 
It may be private utilities like septic, which I'm fine with. And you just have to get more creative uh, and look at, all right, well, this property here, what can I buy it for? At the end of the movie, once I've done all the improvements and I've converted over, what's it going to be worth? And then is it worth it? Is it worth my, you know, is the juice, is the juice worth the squeeze Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, for for your time and and, and effort? So um, a lot more of that, just trying to get creative. Right now in this environment, it's been difficult with interest rates going up. So done a lot of creative financing deals where the seller, you know, finances it and we give him a down payment, which has benefits for the sellers as well. So, you know, just just being open to, uh, you know, to different properties and, and trying to get creative to to bridge the gap between, you know, what I'd like to pay versus, versus you know, what the sellers um, may want to, to get for it. Totally. And tell us about like, you know, the strategy in terms of size, you know, are you, are you not looking at anything under, you know, a hundred lots or is there any, you know, are you looking at stuff with private utilities and then what type of markets are you targeting? You know, where, where is your portfolio? Is it mainly in the Southeast? Uh, maybe you could share some of that. Sure. Uh, I try, if I'm in a brand new area, like I own nothing in the state or in this, this, you know, within like a couple hours, I try to be around 50 lots or greater. And for a couple of reasons, if you get to really small parks uh, and they're also far away, they can be difficult to manage because it's hard to pay a manager something that's reasonable. To, and then uh, if you only have, you know, a 20 space park. Um, mm-hmm. So I try to do 15 up. The other reason is my end goal with all of these is to get them into a Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac loan. And they have a minimum size of about 50 lots. I will say, though, if you're just starting out and you're trying to buy a park, Small parks can make a lot of money because a lot of the bigger players and a lot of other people are not targeting them. You know, 20 to 30 space or, you know, even smaller parks, most people just overlook. And if I look at just some of my P&Ls on parks, the, some of the, I have some smaller parks that are direct build, city water and sewer, full, tendon Those can make a ton of money because, uh, again, you get into them for such a low cost basis. You have very little expenses, and especially if it's nearby. Sometimes I don't even have a manager. So I would say don't be don't close your mind to to buying smaller properties, especially if you're just getting started out. Um, but yeah, for me personally, though, I'm trying unless it's nearby something I have, I try to get you know bigger properties now. That's fantastic. Yeah. How do you fund the equity for your deals? So everything I own is either myself, a little over half of what I own is just me, and then the other half I'll have with like one business partner. So either I'm, I have like business partners, we'll, we'll source deals together and we'll buy it together or people I've met will bring me a deal and we'll buy it together. And so it's, it's been, uh, thankfully, I've looked at raising money and things like that. And I've had people ask me, but thankfully, it's just been one at a time usually. And, and so I've been able to take it down with either myself or one business partner. And that's how I've, I've done it so far. Very cool. What do you think is the best strategy right now? You know, it's October 2023. Interest rates are high. You mentioned seller carry and, and including some of that so we can still get deals done. You know, what what strategy though are, do you think is best, you know, for the next 12 to 24 months from you know inside a mobile home park sure. thing? I would say just play the long game. Some of these parks I've bought, it's been two or three years, like from really from my first started looking at parks in 2018 marketing till uh till now, before they they ended up selling. Uh, literally just every few months calling them up and it's just taken that long. Uh, and really like, I think this helps with anything in life, but especially in park investing, 
like I really do enjoy the conversations. And, you know, when you're talking to mom and pop, actually listen to them. Don't just be like, oh, you know, I don't want to hear about your grandkids or fishing. But no, that's important, too. <laughs> and that's how you get that bonding. And then whenever they do want to sell, they're going to call you or they're going to sell to you because, you know, you actually did care. They can they can tell. So I would say just play the long game. And the other piece of advice I would say is just you have at it. How many owners have you called this week? How many people have you talked to? How many mailers have you sent out? Just keep your funnel full of deals. It is a tough market right now, but people are still buying deals. I'm, I'm closing on one in, in two days. And that was a, another long one in the works. But uh, so yeah, just, just stay active, You know, be optimistic, be enthusiastic, and uh, just play the long game. Yeah, that's great. I, I like how you have your the top of the funnel, right? Like if you're, if you're always cultivating that, you'll always have deals, no matter what the market's doing. And I think one thing that I've realized from talking to sellers over the last month or so is sellers know what's going on. They know rates are higher. And they're willing to be realistic, you know, and, and try to do a seller carry or, you know, they'll hold a note on the, the mobile homes themselves to try to help you get a deal done. So, you know, I think just being realistic and, and telling them what's going on and yeah. what you're seeing when you're trying to get financing is, is super valuable. Yeah. So one thing I want to add to that as well is if you can buy a park right now with these interest rates and that makes sense, that cash flows and it meets all the other metrics, that's a fantastic buy. Because yeah. interest rates eventually are going to go back down. And then you've come into a bunch of equity uh, at that point. If you know, you're know you at 7.5%, 8% right now, and they drop later down back to 5, 5.5, five well, that's a ton of value that's been created. Uh, so this is a great time to buy. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with you on that. Abraham, what mistakes have you made in mobile home park investing that uh, our listeners can learn from? I would say uh, there's a couple that come to mind. As far as management goes, you know, the, the, the I get this from Frank. I'm sure you've heard it. The easiest way to change people is to change people. So <laughs> everyone seems great, whether it's a tenant or a manager. When you're interviewing them, they all are, sound so wonderful. They'd be perfect. And then after you either let them in or you hire them, you know, then you find out how act, good they actually are or are not. So whenever you do make a hire, whether it's a manager or another and hire, you're going to know right away if it's not going to work out. And don't delay that. It, you want so we have the tendency to want to drag it out and hope things get better. But you're better off just cutting it off right then. Okay, this is not working out. I appreciate it, but and moving on to the next person because a bad manager can give you a lot of heartache. You're yes. better off having no manager than a bad manager. The other thing I would say, as far as mistakes, is if there's a part, and I've, I made this mistake once, and I'll never make it again. If if you're talking to mom and pop and they're ready to sell. And they tell you, okay, we're going to sell the product. We will sell it for this price. If you can pay that price and it still makes sense for you, don't try to negotiate them down just for the sake of negotiating them. Just, okay, I'll do it. There was a great park uh, in the city I live in, actually, that I've been trying to buy ever since I looked at parks in, in 2018, first started learning about them. And he finally called me one day and he was like, hey, I'm ready to sell and I want this prize. And, you know, I, uh, well, but I called him back and said, hey, would you do you know, this much, like 10% less. And he said, oh, I'll let you know. Didn't hear anything from him. Oh, week passes, nothing. I'm starting to get nervous. Another week passes. I finally get him on the phone. He said, yeah, I signed a contract for the full price with someone else. It's like, oh no. Oh, and my, I'm kicking myself. I'm like, man, I, I could have paid that. I really could have. It would have been, you know, a little bit more than I wanted to pay, but it would have worked. It would have been a great, great park, you know? So if you can pay the price they throw out, just, just say, okay, I'll do it. Um, because if you don't, somebody else will tell them yes, and then you'll lose the deal. Yeah, that's a great, great uh, golden nugget right there. 
What are the most important things that passive investors need to look out for when investing into mobile home parks? You know, we're talking LPs that are investing with you or me or another operator. You know, what what should they look at in a deal? Sure. So when you're investing with somebody else, you're betting on two things. It's just like a horse race. You're betting on the racehorse and you're betting on the jockey. So you're betting on the property itself. And then possibly more important, you're betting on the syndicator, the person putting the deal together. So you really, you want, I would say, look at their track record, look at the previous deals they've done and, and how those have turned out. And then also look at the property itself. You know, what are they buying it for? How much is the projected upside? Where is the property located? Um, people think for some reason that, you know, the, the ad is location, location, location doesn't apply to their asset class, but no, it definitely does. You know, I found instance in my own portfolio, everything else, if you have a really good location, it fixes almost any other problem you'll have just because of that so much demand you get for that product. So if you're looking to invest, again, just, just really look at who you're investing with and then the proper, the specific deal. And then the track record, I'd say, is, is very important. Definitely. Is there any metrics when you look at a, an area that tell you if it's a good market or not? So one thing I look at that's just a... A really quick one. Yeah, you know, I use, I'm sure you use well, bestplaces.net. Uh, is this is this place uh, in a metro as defined by the you know U.S. government? And then look, is it declining or is it growing? I look at is there a Walmart that's within five to ten miles of it? And for, that's for a couple of reasons. The Walmart one is Walmart. They spend millions and millions of dollars researching areas, population trends, and they're only going to put a super Walmart somewhere that they see a future in that location. You're not, they're not putting in the middle of nowhere, unlike you know, Dollar General, which seems like they're around every rural forest as Dollar General. <laughs> but Walmart, they're only going to put something that's going to be there long term. And the other reason is all of our tenants, at least with myself, you know, we have them pay at Walmart, pay their rent there. Um, so just, you know, what's around there? It, you know, again, it, when you drive there, if you're, if you're close enough where you can personally visit the area, does this feel like a safe area? You know, the neighborhood, the community, the property itself. If the whole area is nice, but the property itself is kind of rough, that's not as bad because you can always fix that, but you can't fix everything else around you. Hmm. Um, so just, again, uh, look at metrics, population growth. A big one for me, I would say the most important metric I found, all whether it's population, income, the number one thing, if you looked at nothing else, is the average single family home price. Because I found if you're in, I have some parks and markets where the average single family home price is over half a million. And those by far have the highest demand because, you you know, people want affordable housing. They're not going to be able to buy a half a million dollar house, but they maybe can buy a $30,000 mobile home because they want to live in this area. There's a reason why the house price is so high. So that's a big one I've really recently been focusing on is just what's the single family home price, among other things. But just those are some quick uh, metrics I look at when I'm uh, evaluating a deal. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, Abraham, if you were going to describe the perfect mobile home park, what, what would that look like and, uh, and why? Sure. So number one, again, great location would be fantastic. I'm talking Nashville, Atlanta, Charlotte, just a you know, primary market. It would be over a hundred lots, uh, mm-hmm. full, everyone owns their home. Everyone cuts their own lawn. It's city water, city sewer. Everyone gets a bill for their utilities. City owns the roads. City owns the sidewalks. I actually have some parks that are close to this, uh, is at least with it, but not in like the greatest area. 
but really as many things as you can because you want to be in the business of renting land so if you can get a park where everyone pays the utilities city rep maintains the roads there's what is there left to do you're just basically doing collections and rule enforcement at that point so that's the perfect park and i I literally dream about I dream about parks more often than I'd like to admit. So I've <laughs> dreamed about this park before. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, you and me both. What does the future of mobile home park investing look like? You know, it's October 2023. Obviously, rates are really high. You know, how do you see mobile home parks fitting in with the direction the economy is going moving forward? I think the demand for affordable housing is only going to go up. You know, we see right now a lot of consolidation with parks. You know, we see apartment people getting into parks because multifamily is pretty high right now and there's not many deals and there's still, there's better returns in parks. And again, there's so many other benefits, I think, coming from multifamily into parks that make parks superior to multifamily. So as we continue to see consolidation in these big groups like, you know, Carlisle Group and Blackstone and, and all these other ones buying parks, that's just going to make the asset class more valuable and also gives more legitimacy to it. Because as much as, you know, we'd hate it and we, we know it's not true, there's still the stigma with mobile home parks, but that is going away. So if you can get into parks right now and you can buy a deal, you know, and, and it checks all the boxes and you, you're not overpaying, then it's only going to get better. Uh, it's only going to get better. You, again, the cap rate's going to continue to compress just over time and the property value is going to go up and the demand is going to continue to increase. And I found one other thing I really love about parks is they're to me they're a fixable thing. So you get a park, you have may have some vacant lots, you may have some rental homes, but you can fix it and get it to where it's all full, all tenant owned. And then I have some parks I haven't even been to in six months. I still have people go and visit them, but there's like I don't even hear about them because they're so turnkey at that point. With apartments, I was constantly chasing occupancy and repairs, and so um, yeah, I have nothing but good things to say about parks, and uh, it's only going to get better. That's fantastic. Yeah. I just did a recording earlier today with Franco Perez, and he's a big manufactured housing guy in uh, San Jose, California. Yeah. And he was, he was telling me about how millennials are, you know, they're choosing lifestyle over, you know, kind of grinding it out in, in the same job for a long time. So they're big on like remote work and affordable housing and, and buying manufactured homes in, you know, elite locations like, you know, uh, Huntington Beach, California, San Jose and, and other areas. And I, I think you're right. I think that stigma is changing. You know, I think there's there's some good operators out there that are really adding a lot of value, you know, like yourself and adding a lot of CapEx to these properties and not just increasing rents right away. But I'm curious, what are your thoughts on rental increases and and, you know, how uh, you know, what's, what's the most you would raise rents, you know, in the first year of, of a new acquisition? Sure. So <laughs> I bought a park, one of the parks I bought with the lowest rents. This was in a market lot rents were like 300 to 350. I bought a park from mom and pop. The rents were $60 a month, Jeez. <laughs> $60 a month. They owned it for 40 years. They'd never raised rents and they first built since they first built it. Jeez. And so we got in there we sent everyone letters saying, Hey, now the rent's 150 now. This is still a good deal. You know, here's the other parks in here. They're all at 300. So, but if you want to leave, let us know. You're, you're free to move. No one even complained. They're like, Yeah, I knew it was coming. You know, they're kind of laughing about how good of a deal they got the last, you know, three decades. <laughs> so, but just in general, that's, that's unusual that you see them that low. I, we try to stay no more than around $50 uh, a month 
you know, at an increase. So and we go up, you know, once a year at most, and we try to get no more than $50. And it really depends on where the rents are at when we buy it and where they're at uh, in the market. Again, there's some markets I'm at that lot rents the market 650 and the park we took over is at 200. So it's going to be, you know, five, six years before we get to that. And by that point, the lot rents probably going to be eight, 900. So, and, and one thing that's important about rent increases is they are necessary to keep the housing affordable. And that seems kind of counterintuitive, but if rents don't go up, one of two things happens. Either the park gets sold for land value and everyone gets kicked out and redeveloped. And I've seen that time and time again because the rents are just so low, it does not make sense as a park. And so the, the highest and best use is another uh, value. Um, or even if it says as a park, it just looks terrible because the owner has no revenue to put money back in the park, whether it's roads or, or landscaping, trees, all this is very expensive or, or the infrastructure. Uh, so the rents have to go up. And you know, a lot of people don't like to talk about this, but obviously we wouldn't be doing this if we weren't you know, we, we weren't making money as well. So we need to make money also. I mean, there has to be, otherwise, why do anything? Like, as far as the business sense, I mean, that's the whole purpose of why we're, we're doing this. Um, it is rewarding in a lot of different ways, but if we can't put bread on the table, then we will we'll be doing something else. Um, so rents have to go up. And really, my experience has been, most residents are totally fine with it. You know, with anything, you'll get the five to maybe 10% that are mad, just about anything. Uh, someone told me once that, you know, a lot of uh, tenants in general, any asset class, they're just sometimes they're perpetual whiners. You so they could win the lottery and they'd be complaining about having to pay taxes. So <laughs> <laughs> I always tell the joke, we could go into a park and lower the rent and they'd find a way to complain. Oh, hey, it's about time. You know, they should have done it even more. And so uh, don't let it bother you. What what you should be concerned with. And again, what most of the tenants look for is, is this still a good value? What are the other parks in this market at? Because they have friends in these other parks or they know them. There's not very many parks typically in any any area. And often what we'll put in our renting police letters is, you know, hey, this is these are the improvements we've done. These are the ones we have planned. You know, the rent's going to this amount. And uh, here's the other parks in the area. This is what their rents are at. Call them and check. So we still think this is a good value. We're still less expensive than everybody else. But if you disagree, you're free to move. And that really that shows them because they, they just want to feel that they're getting a good deal and they're not getting taken advantage of. And if you can show them that most of them have no problem at all paying high rents. And I've even, again, I've had residents uh, through managers or directly when I was managing the parks tell me that, you know, I'm so happy you guys took over. Um, this place looks so good now. I actually feel like I can play outside with my kids and I'm not worried about some of the shady people that used to live in the park that we've evicted or gotten rid of. And, and they just, they're so happy because the park is just like a whole new life has, has been breathed into it. Uh, and there's been three different parks that we've that I've purchased that the other person trying to buy them was going to go in there and tear them down and redevelop it. So the residents are more than happy to pay $50 more a month if it means being able to to keep uh, keep their house and keep living there. Totally. Yeah. No, it sounds like you're doing it the right way, you know, uh, not just, you know, raising it some astronomical amount and, and not providing any, you know, capital expenditures, but but yeah, a lot of these mom and pops, you know, you see it time and time again, they just, they're living off of these as retirement vehicles and they're not reinvesting into them to trim the trees, to, you know, do the landscaping appropriately, to fix, you know, skirting with holes in it on, on some of the older homes. So I think all that, you know, when you come in and you fix up a community, a lot of the residents really resonate, really appreciate that. So I totally agree with you. I want to compliment you for a minute. I've been through some of your communities, both before and after you purchased them. 
And I would say you do the same thing. I've witnessed this myself as far as fixing skirting and, and the roads and landscaping. So, you know, I applaud you. I know you're doing it the right way as well because I've seen it. Oh, I appreciate that, man. Thank you. Um, what, what do you think is the biggest threat, Abraham, to mobile home park investing? Uh, in the sense uh, the communities themselves or just investing in them or in general? Yeah, I would say, you know, in, in comparison to other investment avenues, right? Like you could put money in a, uh, into, to, into you know, money market accounts right now and make over 5%, but, you know, maybe tiny houses, maybe 3D printing. Uh, a lot of people have said, you know, regulation, you know, is a, is a big threat to mobile home park investing, rent control. Uh, curious of your thoughts. Sure. I would say, yeah, absolutely the biggest threat is, is rent control. Um, and I'll, this may be politically incorrect, but I only will buy in red states. <laughs> like I won't buy in coastal states. I'm not going to buy in California, Oregon, Washington. People do it and they make money, but it just terrifies me. Yeah, I don't want to be. I don't want to be the guy in, in in New York State that owns you know twenty parks and then they pass rent control where it's only three percent a year. <laughs> so that's that's the biggest threat. Uh, and it's odd because they'll pass legislation just aimed at parks, uh, and it's always in blue states. So. Uh, again, even if you live in the blue state, there's a lot of blue states I like. I like California. I was there a couple of weeks ago, but I, I don't want to invest there. So that's that's definitely a big threat. Um, really, the other threat I would say is, again, just being investing in a good area. And that's just a general real estate thing like we talked about earlier. Don't, don't buy a park in the middle of nowhere. It's not going to go well. Don't buy a single family home in the middle of nowhere. It's, it's not going to go well. Um, just, just, uh, you know, do your diligence and, um, I really don't see a threat otherwise with legislation. Some people think, oh, well, they're going to legalize building new parks because it's such a great, uh, form of affordable housing. It's the only unsubsidized form of affordable housing, but I don't see that ever happening. Uh, in every market we're in parks are effectively illegal to build. So you have a, a, a monopoly, essentially you, you've got an asset class you know, parks are the only real estate class that shrinks every year because existing parks get torn down for land uh, value and, and built into something else. Another reason people don't always think about why that happens so often with parks is because a lot of cities dislike parks so much, they will give you any zoning you want if you'll tear down the park to, to replace the park with something else, high density, high rise apartments, anything. Um, uh, and, and the reason why it's not because of, I mean, some of it's the stigma, some of it's NIMBYism and all that. But a lot of parks, the cities don't make very much tax revenue off of parks. That's the main reason cities don't like them uh, is, is they just, you know, let's say the mobile home is worth 30,000. The lot's worth 30,000 and the tax rate's 1%. So it's 60,000, $600 a year is what they get. If they have one kid that goes to public school, the city pays $8,000 a year at least, they get school. At, at least, least yeah. 8,000. Yeah. 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 So it would have three kids, you know, and then also they may not have health insurance. So they go to the emergency room and then they may get you know, EBT. And so they, I have some parks, I've done the math where the city, it costs the city over a million dollars a year on these parks. But the good news is they can't get rid of them. They're grandfathered in, they're there, they're allowed to continue on. And so uh, I don't see them ever allowing new parks to be built. Um, so really, the only the biggest threat would be rent control and just just buy in, in areas that are landlord friendly. That's great feedback there. Thank you so much, Abraham. If any of our listeners would like to get a hold of you, what would be the best way for them to do so? Sure. So I uh, probably the website capitalcashflow.com. 
I do have a podcast. I don't upload very regularly. Um, I'm too busy buying the parks and, and running them and getting chased out of parks to uh, to do that. But you can contact me through that website. And uh, yeah, love. To, please reach out. I'd love to talk to anybody and, and answer any questions if some people have any uh, any other uh, feedback. Awesome. That's capitalcashflow.com. And we'll yes. put that in the uh, in the show notes. Abraham, before we log, we log off here, what's one last bit of important advice that you would give an interested, you know, passive mobile home park investor before we sign off? I would say a lot of people I've seen, they just they really have that fear of pulling the trigger. They may know everything about it. Like they may be familiar with everything that we've talked about today, but they still haven't pulled the trigger because they're just so petrified. Just just do it. <laughs> Again, pick a good syndicator, pick a good operator, pick a good property and just do it. You don't have to bet the farm on it. Just invest the minimum even and just see how it goes. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised and all the knowledge you've learned from listening to these podcasts will turn out to be true. It doesn't Again, it doesn't have to be a big investment. So I would just say if you've learned all this stuff and you've done your research, just pull the trigger and try it or, or just buy a park. If you're looking at you know buying one, buy a small park and see how it goes. Um, if if you never get started, you're never going to to get anywhere. Uh, and there's and the, uh, there's this one quote I heard early on in real estate that I thought was great that ten years is going to go by whether you own real estate or not. Uh, so start right now. I love that. That is awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Andrew. That's it for today, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hey, are you getting value out of this show? If so, would you mind please going over to iTunes and leaving the show a quick five-star review? I have a goal of hitting over a hundred five-star reviews by the end of 2021, and it would mean the absolute world to me if you could help contribute to that. Thanks ahead of time for making my day with your five-star review of the show.